Well, hello, everyone. And on behalf of the Canadian Society of Cardiac Surgeons, or the CSCS, as we are often referred to, we would like to welcome you to the CSCS Beat, more than just matters of the heart. My name is Dr. Ansar Hassan. I'm a cardiac surgeon here at the New Brunswick Heart Center in St. John, New Brunswick. And I'm also president-elect of the CSCS. Hi, my name is Rakesh Arora. I'm a cardiac surgeon intensivist in Winnipeg, Manitoba, and the current president of the CSCS. You know, for years, we have tried to come up with new and exciting ways to connect with our membership and actually even beyond our members. And I would argue that the CSCS podcast is the one idea I am the most excited by. Mm -hmm. Podcasts are all the rage and we're all listening to them, especially during the pandemic, whether it be while driving into work, walking the dog that we got because of COVID, or riding on our Peloton. So what better way for the CSCS to spread the word than to come up with our own podcast? So what we're hoping to achieve with these podcasts is a less formal, interactive discussion amongst our panelists and participants on a given evening that we were doing one of these podcasts. Imagine this is sort of now following a formal presentation. You're having a more collegial discussion, either at the end of the meeting or over dinner and drinks and so forth. What we want to do is discuss with, a, with Canadian experts and opinion makers on the hottest and most controversial topics that are facing our field today. We're going to focus on all things cardiac surgery. We're going to extend ourselves beyond borders, as you've heard from Answer virtually, of course, and tap into the great cardiac surgery minds around the world. So before we get the ball rolling, I think it would be uh, important that we thank our sponsors, Edward Life Sciences, and for our production partners, Bang Albino, for providing the, techni the technical expertise that really we would need in order to create this podcast. For our inaugural session, I think we've chosen a pretty good topic to kick things off. Tonight's topic will be... Taver does not mean the end of Saver. Our guest that is none other than Dr. Jean-Francois Laguerre. Jean-Francois Laguerre is a cardiac surgeon and head of cardiac surgery at the New Brunswick Heart Center, a member of the Taver team at his institution, and the past president of the CSCS. The modern treatment of aortic valve disease is rapidly changing. In the past 10 years, uh, transcatheter aortic valve replacement, or TAVR, strategies have become common for the treatment of symptomatic severe aortic stenosis. Once limited to higher risk or inoperable patients, TAVR procedures have now shown to be feasible and safe in low risk patients with severe aortic stenosis. And now we're really seeing TAVR starting to compete with SAVR uh, for that same patient population. I thought I would take this opportunity to summarize the three partner trials because I think the partner trials have really formed the basis for a lot of the discussion in this field. And especially for those of you who may not be as familiar with the data, I thought this would be a great opportunity to just do a kind of a brief summary. So first of all, when we're looking at, at, at the partner trials, we start with partner one that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine back in 2011. The partner one trial really focused on high risk patients. And that's really how TABR was first introduced as, as, a, as a means to treat patients with severe erythrocnosis that were technically high risk or inoperable. This one looked at 699 patients across 25 centers with a mean STS risk of about 11.8%. It was a randomized trial with a primary endpoint of all cause death at one year. It was a non-inferiority design and they showed differences in periprocedural risk Example, major vascular complications, major bleeding, and new onset atrial fibrillation. However, when it came back to the primary endpoint, which was death from all cause at, at one year, 
we saw that there was really no difference between Taver and Saver. Now, of course, naturally, as one would have expected, the, the, these studies were not going to be limited to just simply high-risk or inoperable patients. Partner 2 came out in 2016, and Partner 2 looked at intermediate-risk patients with severe aortic stenosis. 2,000 patients roughly across 57 centers participated in this study with a mean SDS risk score of 5.8%. The primary endpoint, unlike Partner 1, was a combination of all-cause death and disabling stroke at two years. Once again, a non-inferiority design. There were differences noted in the aortic valve area, acute kidney injury, new onset atrial fibrillation that favored TAVR, but there was also differences noted in major vascular complications, paravalvular AI, which favored SAVR. They also noted differences in the technique that was used for TAVR, whether it be transfemoral versus transapical. This is the at the, end of, at the end of the day, this is the result that really kind of drove this study, which was the two-year primary outcome of interest, which was death from any cause or disabling stroke. And what they found at two years was that there was no significant difference between SAVR and TAVR, hence indicating that this treatment was safe in patients with intermediate risk. Now, when we look at a five-year outcome uh, analysis of PARTNER2 that came out last year in the New England Journal of Medicine, the primary outcome now was all-cause death or disabling stroke at five years. Once again, they showed some transfemoral versus transapical differences, which we won't discuss here. Paravalvular AI, repeat hospitalizations, and aortic valve reinterventions were higher in the TAVR group. But once again, there was no real significant difference between TAVR and SAVR at five years on the basis of these data. But what is interesting is that as you can start to see here, sort of between three years and five years, you're starting to see a little bit of a crossover between SAVR and TAVR in terms of competing lines and, and, and a changing risk profile over time, suggesting that long-term data is really going to be key in determining the safety and potentially the superiority of one intervention over the other. Finally, Partner 3. This was published in 2019, and this was really a game changer in many ways. It really brought a lot of us to the point of making serious discussions around the role of TAVR versus SAVR in patients with severe aortic stenosis, but who were low risk. A thousand patients across 71 centers with a mean STS score of 1.9%. The primary endpoint, unlike the other two studies, no studies have had actually the same primary endpoint. This one was a composite of death, stroke, or rehospitalization at one year. I always get a little bit concerned about composite endpoints, especially at one year in a randomized trial. They tested this, they tested TAVR for both superiority and non-inferiority. So this was a little bit different also. It was no longer about just not being inferior, it was also about potentially being superior. What they noted was that there was a lower 30-day risk stroke rate, a shorter index hospitalization, and a lower risk of poor treatment outcomes at 30 days amongst the TAVR population. There were no significant differences in vascular complications, permanent pacemaker insertion rates, and paravalvular AI between TAVR and SAVR. Now, I want to show you this because it's interesting, and it incorporates data from the most recently published, literally as of yesterday, in Jack, uh, where they now look at not only the, the initial results of partner three at one year, but also now at two years. What you can see at one year is that there is a significant difference, suggesting that TAVR was not only non-inferior, it was also superior to surgery in terms of the composite outcome of interest. But now when we start looking at two years, 
you start to see that, yes, that difference persists, but the difference is not as tremendous. Actually, what we're starting to see now is a bit of a convergence. If we look just at death, which was you know, the primary outcome of interest in the partner one trial, you really see that while there was a bit of a difference, although not significant in, at one year, that difference is even less pronounced at two years. And there are other differences that they have, no, that they have noted in the partner three trial between the one year study and the two year study, suggesting that there was convergence. So besides not just death, but there was also a convergence with respect to stroke, uh, the combination of death or disabling stroke, rehospitalization, all of these were no longer as pronounced at, at two years as they were at one year. In fact, many of these didn't reach statistical significance. Finally, at two years, there was also mention made of valve thrombosis. And these thrombosis rates were much higher at two years than they were at one year in the TAVR population. So these are all things that do need to be considered when we're starting to assess these data in the, in the grand scheme of things. So, and so that's a really great summary and a lot for us to sink our teeth into for this podcast today. So I'm going to start with a very broad question to start with for you, JF. With the sort of dramatic changes we've now seen in the last decade, almost a decade since the first party trial was published in 2011, we've seen an explosion of TAVR cases across Canada, certainly, with some centres now seeing TAVR rates higher than surgical AVR in certain jurisdictions. Very broadly, where do you think we stand right, right now for the treatment of isolated aortic stenosis, SAVR versus TAVR? Let's just start broadly and we can narrow down with some more peppering type questions as we go forward. Yeah, thank you for the question. Uh, I, there's no doubt that things have changed and, and TAVR has been demonstrated to be a, an efficacious and safe procedure. Uh, but the way you know I approach patients is I still approach patients with aortic stenosis. The first thing we see is, you know, is severity really there? It still remains the primary thing. Then once it's severe, would they benefit from intervention? Yes or no? And if the answer is yes, that what has changed is really our approach and defining, you know, what is the best intervention for that patient. And I think that's really the way in the framework that I really like to think about it. Uh, is not really one better than the other, is really trying to find, you know, is this patient better suited for surgery or this patient better suited for transcatheter valve? And that's really where a frame of mind should be really focusing on, where TAVR really is not competing with SAVR or SAVR is not competing with TAVR. There are clearly some aspects and some patient population that one is potentially better than the other. And that's really behooves us to really assess it in that way. And it really highlights how you know, you really need a vibrant heart team to do this, and you really need input from both surgeons and cardiologists and interventionalists to do this. Uh, I think moving forward is really our collaborative nature and the way we talk about patients. And, you know, my interventional colleagues saying, well, you know, the access here is pretty difficult, or I might have trouble crossing that valve is really helpful the same way as you know, I might say, well, you know, overall, this is a pretty low risk patient is pretty young, they would likely have a very good long term result, maybe surgery is favored here. Uh, so perceiving the technical challenges of each and the other, and understanding them is really what's key here. And so this is what I would encourage most programs is the more vibrant a team you have, and the more involved your surgeons are in the TAVI process and in deciding which patients go for TAVR versus SAVR, the better you can understand the benefits of each and, and benefit from each other. That's really where I would see it. 
So if I'm going to paraphrase what you just said, then your basic approach is the same. Make sure there's an indication for an intervention of any sort, regardless of what you're going to choose. Have a discussion with the patient about the options. Have a heart team to decide a best appropriate therapy for that patient with the options you have available and ensuring appropriate collaboration on decision making. Is that a reasonable summary? That, that's exactly right. And, you know, and, and to also be cautious of the, while the trial evidence is very compelling, right, right. no doubt, these patient population that were tested are not reflective of everyone. You know, for example, in the TAVR, even partner three, these were not young patients. Right. Talked about having no long-term data. These patients under the age of 65 were excluded. There was no patient with, you know, bicuspid aortic valve disease. There's a black box sort of statement on the FDA approval. But, you know, most people might ignore that aspect. Not that the TAVR shouldn't be done in bicuspid valve, but it is not necessarily, you know, these are the kinds of patients you might consider, you know, bicuspid valve, you know, a pretty or size of aorta that's not quite normal, very extensive calcium. That's a patient that a TAVR risk may be a little bit higher for not an optimal result on a TAVR. That's a patient that should have a, a surgical aortic valve replacement in that setting. So it's really understanding those limitations. And while the trials were very good, they're not necessarily generalizable to everyone. And one way also to think about it is if you look at the Evolute trial, for example, mm -hmm. they weren't, you know, the differences were not as striking. They were much more on the non-inferior side and very similar outcomes. So it shows that, you know, both the therapies are very good, both platform, different platforms for TAVR, but so is surgical aortic valve replacement. So it's really about us choosing what's best for these patients. Right, right. So when you, uh, JF, when you see somebody, for instance, who's under the age of 70, who has it in their mind that, you know, they want to have a TAVR as opposed to a SAVR, because that's what they've read about on the internet. That's what they've been told maybe by their referring cardiologist or even their family physician. What do you say to them, um, especially if they are a surgical candidate for all intensive purposes. Yeah, I mean, my approach in my institution is when patients obviously bring their preferences and there's no doubt that patients are gonna bring their preferences. The easiest way to sort of present all of the information to them and to vet it in, in as open a manner possible is to actually put it through our TAVI process or a TAVI team assessment. So our surgeon, let's say yourself, you're on call, you would see that patient you would assess that surgical risk, you would assess them for surgery, but then there would be a TAVI referral and I would see them also, my cardiology colleagues would see them, they get the proper CT evaluation and then we'd have a full evaluation of their cognitive risk, their physical assessment, all of the anatomy from the CT scan and all of the information, then we'd be able to tell, you know, you know, maybe SAVR in this setting makes more sense because of some of the things I mentioned, access is not very good. And certainly age plays a big role in our mind because the part that age that, that, you know, if we think the life expectancy of that patient is long for them to have a TAVR initially and then be potentially faced with a repeat TAVR, which the outcome we really don't know yet compared to a SAVR with us. Then after that, a potentially TAVR within a SAVR, which is a little bit more established is the kinds of discussions we have at our TAVI rounds. So someone who's young, we think has a long life expectancy, doesn't have a lot of clinical risk factors, even if there'd be a straightforward TAVR, most of my colleagues on the cardiology side would favor SAVR for that patient. And that's where the pendulum is at the current moment. And will that change? Potentially it depends on evidence as we go forward. But at the present time, most of these patients would be offered SAVR over TAVR in that setting. 
So I got a question for answer. You brought this up in your in your nice overview of everything. Concern about composite endpoints. Tell me a little bit about why you think that's a problem with looking at this data. But to answer these questions that JF's talking about, about how do you then counsel patients with this data that may or may not be appropriate to interpret in the setting for that particular patient? Yeah, I think, you know, uh, from a statistical standpoint, every time you employ a composite outcome, you always worry about what the motivations are behind employing that outcome. Um, when you when you combine something as uh, as arguably as simple as death with rehospitalization and stroke, you're looking at three almost very different things, and you're putting them together in one outcome, such that if you do in fact get a worse composite outcome in one for one particular strategy versus another, you don't necessarily know what it is that's driving that outcome. So the conclusion at the end of the day, when it's being advertised through the press, the lay press in particular, is that one intervention is better than another. Little do people know that maybe it's rehospitalization that was driving that versus death versus stroke. And I, and I would say that in a randomized trial, um, when you are now taking the opportunity to actually randomize patients to one versus the other uh, form of intervention, that is, I think you, it behooves you to really appropriately power that study to get, a, get, a, get a, an outcome of interest that actually is of value to the clinician and to the patient. It's interesting that partner one uh, was about death, partner two started to combine death with disabling stroke, and now partner three had three things put together. And it just, you know, when you start, you, you, when you start dissecting out these outcomes and you're looking at the individual pieces, you start to see that they all often go in very different directions, which makes it incredibly difficult to combine them as a proper composite outcome. Right. So really, really good points there. Do you have to do anything else to add to that? Yeah. I, my, my issue a little bit is along the, uh, the non-inferiority trials. I think we have a tendency to equate non-inferiority to equivalence. And that's something that, that you know, it's just lay sort of speak and, and, and we make these assumptions all the time. But non-inferiority trials are not that I'm a pure statistician, but they're designed to sort of provide, you know, it's an acceptable range of difference that you a priori decide, it can be quite wide that difference between the two trials or the two therapy, but you're really testing it against a standard of care. So, so again, it's the, the devils in the details when you create non-inferiority trials and they've become very, very popular and they're part of our vernacular and the way we do things now, but I'm not sure. And I'm sure the average person thinks, well, if they're non-inferior, it means they're the same. Well, they're not quite the same. It means they, they may have met just close enough to what the standard of care is, mm -hmm. as long as you accept this amount of variation across between the two and whatever that range might be. So again, it's something to think about when you think about the design of these trials. Some important stuff. Let's, let's move away from this a little bit. I'm going to pivot a little bit. I think that we have a lot of really great content, so we could probably spend an hour talking just about this. But let me just pivot a little bit. Minimally invasive aortic valve surgery. Where's the role with that in comparing with just traditional SAVR and TAVR? What are your thoughts on that? You know, uh, minimal invasive is, is going to have a role as long as we, we obviously provide. So surgeons are very innovative in how they do things. Uh, and, and there are patients that are going to fit for surgical aortic valve replacement. Uh, and, and those patients that fit for SAVR are going to be attracted by minimally invasive approaches that can be offered. Having said that, there's no doubt that we're never going to compete for something put on a wire. It's very, very hard to compete with someone who gets their transcatheter valve and are home the next day with low morbidity. 
So, so again, it's, it's not offering. You, you, we shouldn't be trying to compete with the patients that are already known to do very well with TAVRs at the present time. So the elderly or the higher risk or the moderate risk, you, you know, the young patients are the ones we should be targeting. These are the kinds of patients right now that would benefit and potentially may want these kinds of approaches. So this is where I would focus my energy. Uh, so I wouldn't abandon that entirely, but there is, there is something there that that's a hard, a hard fight. Right. So Absolutely. Go ahead. Go ahead. Answer you. First. Yeah, and I would say that uh, in 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 addition to that, I think those are excellent points. And I think you know the key with minimally invasive surgery is that, you know, just like with TAVR versus SAVR, you know, it's still the the indications for surgery are the same. You, the reasoning for why it is that you operate on somebody is the same. You don't want to ever change that just because you have a slightly better or much better technique of doing it that's minimally invasive and less harmful to the patient or will potentially, you know, in, you know, sort of promote better recovery. Uh, having said that though, I mean, right now, the two major techniques that are less invasive than your traditional sternotomy are, uh, you know, hemisternotomy AVRs and right anterior mini thoracotomy AVRs. And both of those have been facilitated by the advent of the sutureless valve. But regardless, I think at the end of the day, all of these procedures are still technically open heart procedures and they have a risk attached to them that doesn't necessarily make them the equivalent of TAVR in the short term. Where it fits in the long term, I think there's really, you know, that's an opportunity for us to do some further studies. Great, great. So that's a, a really good segue thing. And we're almost out of time. So I want to kind of go to sort of, again, a broad kind of question for both of you and for, uh, for us as a group, perhaps. What's the future hold, both from where we're going to be going with this technology, and what will this mean for our trainees who are coming through now as a current generation would have a very different exposure than perhaps what we would have all had during our time? Yeah, I think our ability to refine who benefits from one therapy versus another is going to keep getting better. Uh, we, you know, I, I, I'm amazed on how many times now we present patients for TAVR that we think, oh, this is going to be straightforward TAVR patient. And there is some anatomy reason, there's some other reason. And because we're talking about low risk and moderate risk patients all the time, it's like, oh, fine, we'll just go back to surgery. So this is really where it's evolving. But where we're, our head are not really wrapped up properly is the patients who've had TAVR who come back now for a second intervention. Is it going to be better now to have their TAVR removed, to have their surgical AVR? Because they're going to be young enough potentially to have that and fit enough to have that. And this is where this complexity of procedures and starting to plan about first, second, third procedure, yeah. this is where we need to be thinking about. And so the complexity of the team assessment and really vetting these patients properly is really important. Um, and our trainees, you know, they need to be part of this and they're going to live and see this. And I think they can be trained in, in this. And there's no reason they shouldn't be able to. I think they'll do well. I think yeah. it's an exciting time for all for our trainees with all this innovation going on. Sorry, answer I interrupted you. Go ahead. No, and I think I think you're absolutely right. I think what's so neat about this is that, you know, the the person who's benefiting the most from all of this is the patient. You know, they're the ones who now have an incredible, you know, set of options in front of them. And I think JF as you alluded to, I think, you know, the beauty of this is that, you know, with a proper heart team in place, you know, we're all going to we, we all stand to benefit from each other's expertise. And, and the patient, as I said, is the one who's going to, you know, be the best for it at the end of the day. Uh, I think, you know, one of the things that we really have to think about as we sort of move forward in this, in this realm is, uh, you know, is realizing that there is no shortage of patients who need some form of intervention. And as you said, this is not a competitive market uh, from where I stand. This is a collaborative market. 
And and I think that's how the heart team needs to function as, as, as we go forward, that this isn't about turf and territory, but rather this is about how do we use the best technologies at our disposal to, to improve patient outcomes and hence, you know, improve overall quality. Yeah, great stuff. So that's, I think that's a really good note for us to end on tonight. So uh, this is a lot of fun. This probably went by very quickly for the time we had allotted ourselves for this first podcast. And it was a lot of fun. Thank you, JF, very much for being our, our first guest on CSCS Beats and uh, to our co-moderator here with Ansar Sen. Once again, I'd like to thank our sponsors, Edward Life Sciences and the production team at Bang Albano to bring this all together. This wraps up for tonight for CSCS Beats, more than just matters of heart. Stay tuned for more podcasts in the future and please put your comments and feedback in the uh, comment bubbles below. And we look forward to hearing more what you might want to see in the future to come. Thanks very much. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. recommendations reflect emerging and clinical scientific advances as a date of issued and are subject to change. These statements are intended to assist practitioners in the clinical decision making and each cardiovascular specialist must still exercise his or her own professional judgment in determining the proper course of action for each patient's differing circumstances. The CSCS assumes no responsibility or liability arising from any error or admission in the use or from the use of any